مرحبا ني هاو هلو اهوي Hello. Hello. I'm Liz Jones, race and culture reporter at KUOW. During this election year, refugee resettlement has become a political flashpoint. The rhetoric has raised questions about newcomers in the U.S. How many should we bring in, and what happens after they arrive here? Today, we kick off a series to introduce some refugees at the heart of this debate. We followed three refugees through their first year in the Seattle area. For many, this year can feel like a race against the clock to set up a new life. We start with Tutu Story, a young man from Burma, grappling with English and big choices for his future. Day one in America at the airport baggage claim. Good. Tutu lugs a bag off the carousel. He's 20 years old, playful, smiling, with long bangs and torn jeans. He looks pretty American, but he barely speaks English. Later, he'll tell me that really scared him. How would he get by if he can't communicate? It's a fear he pushes aside. He's not supposed to be a kid anymore. Tutu's cousin, Sheltar, is here to greet him, after many years apart. They cry, but they don't hug. That's the culture in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. Tutu came here alone as a refugee. He'll live with Sheltar, who made this same journey seven years ago, from a refugee camp in Thailand to Seattle. In the past decade, Burmese refugees have topped the list of new arrivals to the U.S. It's a relatively new community finding its way here. It's around sunset when we arrive at Sheltar's two-bedroom apartment in Kent. Her sister's family also lives here. Tutu brings a total to nine. He'll sleep on a twin bed in the living room. Tutu's his full name, by the way. In Myanmar, you don't use last names. I'm curious to see what Tutu's brought from home. He fishes a picture frame out of his backpack. Ah, that a good frame. It's his girlfriend at the refugee camp. What does it say there? Forever love. Forever love. He pulls a Bible from his bag, and then another. How many Bibles did you bring? <laughs> we count at least four, in his native Karen and in English, a language he's eager to practice. Uh, hello, friend. <laughs> hello, friend. Mm, hello, friend. How are you? <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. And I know you are very tired now. So That's Cordelia Revels, Tutu's resettlement case manager with Jewish Family Service. An interpreter is also along to help. The agency will help Tutu with his initial resettlement for up to three months. They go over small items. So we have a toothbrush and toothpaste. And then larger goals. We'll start working on everything else, like signing up for English classes and looking for a job and learning how to ride the bus. Um, so we will be with you a lot in the next few days. Tutu nods along to the interpreter. More than anything, he wants to learn English, maybe even be an interpreter himself someday. But he'll also need a job. Decisions like this matter as he sets the mold for his life here. For now, Revels leaves Tutu a $20 bill, just for pocket money. He'll spend it in a few hours on a phone card to call his dad back in Thailand. 
Up until now, Tutu spent most his life in a refugee camp. His family is Karen, an ethnic minority in Myanmar. And for decades, military forces have attacked and burned ethnic villages. More than a million people have been displaced, including Tutu's family. Months after we meet, we briefly talk about this with an interpreter. At first, Tutu makes light of it. <laughs> so, um, he said before, um, while we moved to camp, I carry one chicken. And that's what I remember. <laughs> it's a child's memory. He was only about five. So it was just sudden, sudden you had to pick up and leave? Yeah, suddenly it was a attack. They tried to kill all the current people. So then my grandmother had to carry me out. His grandmother later told him many people died on the way to Thailand. I asked about his other family. No uh, brother or sister? No. They passed away. What happened to your brother and sister? He says his siblings got sick and died young. His mother left after he was born. In Thailand, Tutu settled into a routine life with his father and grandmother. But it was like living in a cage. And as he got older, his dad pushed him to leave and look for opportunity. Tutu wanted to stay, but he followed his dad's wishes. Now, in America, Tutu is starting over again. His youth is on his side. Kids typically adapt easier than adults. But he's right on that line, somewhere in between. Remember, he's just 20. Tutu's first weeks here go by in a blur, full of so many first times. He figures out the bus system and how drivers don't like it if you hand them folded dollar bills or try to get on too soon and that you fall over when the bus lurches forward. Get some fish today. His cousin Sheltar teaches him grocery store 101. Fresh today, like yeah. the date today, so. The expiration date, yeah. Okay, Joy, we do right? Yeah. Oh, he asks this one, this one, like, expensive. Well, we keep hard uh, Does a lot of this stuff look strange to you? Yeah. yeah. Over there, like we eat like fresh. We didn't put in the freezer like that. Tutu buys some ice cream. But at home, there's a whole pig stuffed in the freezer. So the ice cream goes in the fridge. He meets several times with an employment specialist named Summer. Let's start by uh, asking him about his education. Did he finish school in his country? Tutu only got through 11th grade. That'll hurt his job prospects. A key goal of the U.S. resettlement program is for refugees to be self-sufficient and to get jobs in the first few months. Summer pushes Tutu to get a part-time job as soon as possible. Because he needs to pay bills, uh, the cash he receives from DSHS will not be enough to cover everything. And he said only education, only school now. They go around on this a few times. Oh, I just have to think about it, more about it. I don't want to push him. But For Tutu's first eight months here, he gets government aid of $320 a month, as long as he's looking for work. It's not much, but it buys him a little cushion of time, and he wants to use it to learn English. 
It's his cousin Sheltar's advice. She and her husband never had this cushion. They had to pay the rent. And she says it made her feel bad, that maybe her coworkers didn't like her because she couldn't understand English. Tutu can set a different course. It's up to him now to take charge. This is Tutu on his first day in America, trying to spell his name for a caseworker. It's Amatu now. And here he is six months later. Okay, let's go. In English class. That's good. I take the seat next to him. Hi. How are you? Good. And you? Almost since he arrived, Tutu has approached English like a full-time job, and it's paying off. We start to have conversations. I ask what's up with his cell phone. My phone is not good. Not working? Yeah. What, not hap- working. what happened? I don't know. I send money back. Can you use Oh, it? okay. That's okay. I call at your house. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. He takes the bus to class about an hour each way, four nights a week. He arrives early, sits in the front, and confidently calls out answers. He makes his classmates laugh. What did you say? Just kidding. (laughs) You make a joke? Yeah. Class wraps up, and Tutu heads for the bus home. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So we'll talk more next week. Yes. Okay, good night. Good night. Have a good day. Goodbye, teacher. Bye. Have a good weekend. His teacher says he's well-liked and he works hard. She thinks he'll do well here. Tutu has mentioned before that he'd like to be an interpreter someday. But the odds are against him when it comes to English fluency. In census surveys, roughly one out of five Burmese people in the U.S. say they speak English well. The rest will find their worlds limited in many ways, especially in the job market. Hi, Tutu. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? At the 10-month mark, I visit Tutu a final time at his cousin's apartment. Something's changed. He recently turned 21, so I brought him a birthday card. He scratches at the envelope. You didn't You gave up already? Tutu, you should learn to open this. It's striking how many little things are still foreign to him, like a manila envelope. Happy birthday. Thank you. I mentioned that 21 is a big birthday in America, but it doesn't register. I turned to the interpreter. Do you know why? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Everything is legal. <laughs> you, can, you can go to clubs. And <laughs> but Tutu's not interested in any of that. His cousin helped him land a temp job with a big manufacturer in Redmond. He solders together electronic parts for $13 an hour. And at work, his conversation skills are expanding. I know. Hasta mañana. <laughs> and salud. And gracia. gracia. Most of his coworkers speak Spanish. Tutu stuck with English classes for the first eight months, as planned. But now, there's no more time. His relatives have worked similar factory jobs for years, and perhaps he will too. Compared to all refugees in the U.S., Burmese are among the most likely to stay in low-wage jobs due to low levels of education. 
but it's still early days for this community here. More success will likely come with time. Tutu seems proud of his job. He helps pay the rent, he's paying off the travel loan for his flight to the U.S., and he sent $500 to his father back in Thailand. Uh, he said that my grandma feels sick. And, then, yeah, and um, they need help and they need money, so um, he sent money. When Tutu arrived here, his dad told him to only call home every three months. Maybe he thought that would make the transition easier, and maybe it did. It seems Tutu has grown up a lot this past year. He's passed into adulthood. He says life here is good. It's not what he expected, but he's not really sure what he expected. He misses family back home and familiar surroundings, and sometimes he'll ask a friend to drive him to a nearby park. It's kind of far. More like in like a mountain, like, so I can hear like the sound of the river. And it sounds like the mountain village where he grew up, thousands of miles away, and it makes him happy. Our series Upon Arrival continues. Next, we meet a couple from Iran who race against a countdown clock to land their first jobs. It's moving day at apartment number 302 in Kent, just south of Seattle. Peman Karimi and his wife Neda hope it's their last move for a while. They left a tumultuous life in Iran three years ago, then waited in Turkey, uncertain where their refugee case would lead. The upheaval left them broke and brokenhearted. In this home, the weight of the past will lift and new challenges will surface. But this day is one to enjoy. <laughs> Neda checks out the kitchen. So Neda, you're looking at the <laughs> stove here. <laughs> okay? Uh, yes. Her chatty brother-in-law, Reza, lives nearby. He jumps in as our interpreter. We don't have the stuff like that. Just work with gas. Here is electric. In Iran, Neda trained as a pastry chef and worked in a bakery. Heyman steps out to a small balcony. He's still clutching the rental papers in his hand. That's your monthly rent. So how will you be able to pay that next month and the month after? I need a, I need a job. Uh, I like working because uh, I'm young. Paymon worked as an electrician and a welding inspector in Iran. He dropped out of college to make money. Neda and Paymon are both close to 40. You often catch Neda with a half smile, half furrow. Her family teases her that she worries a lot. Her nickname is Neda Stress. Paymon's got a sweep of dark hair and a playful laugh. Everything for me is different and change. Country change, language change, city change. And Reza teases that even Paymon's accent has changed. He sounds Russian. Reza also came as a refugee three years ago, and he hands down some advice to Paymon. For first, you have to do anything. Doesn't matter if housekeeping, cleaning, 
dishwasher. After a few months, you can find a better job and change your job. Netta and Payman will soon discover this is more difficult than it sounds. Here's a snapshot of Netta and Payman's budget. Together, they get a one-time federal grant of about $2,000 as welcome money, then around 400 a month for up to eight months or until they find a job, whichever comes first. Clearly, that doesn't stretch very far. That gets them maybe a month, a month and a half in. This is Cordelia Revels, the resettlement case manager with Jewish Family Service. So there is a lot of pressure to find work immediately and just to find any job that can, can pay the bills. The U.S. resettlement program steers refugees toward employment and self-sufficiency right away. Various government programs help with job placement for up to five years, and the Office of Refugee Resettlement tracks the outcomes. The agency's 2014 report to Congress shows about half the refugees in its caseload found employment. Outcomes steadily improve over time, but the early years can be rough. For Netta and Paymon, the job search will not go smoothly. Back in the kitchen, Netta opens drawers and cabinets. I ask how it compares to their last place. Reza interprets. Her home in Iran was better than here. But Turkey, I can't say it was garbage can. Oh, yeah. This is better than Turkey. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 100% better than Turkey. In the months ahead, I'll never learn exactly why Neda and Payman left Iran. Uh, they say it was a lot of things, as we talk one afternoon with an interpreter. Did anything happen? Like, what? Did something happen to you? Yes. Something negative? Yes, something bad? Something negative. And uh, not for me, but for Neda. Is that something you can talk about or? She doesn't feel comfortable to talk about it because it's going to bring everything back to her again. That's okay. I'm sorry that happened to you. All Neda says is her case is religious. The rest is confidential. The U.S. defines a refugee as someone with a well-founded fear of persecution in their home country. Iran is a majority Muslim country. Religious minorities face discrimination, surveillance, and arrest. Payman and Netta are Christian. I'm in Kent, outside the office of Jewish Family Service, and I'm here to meet Netta and Payman. Today is their three-month check-in, and their case manager has described this to me as kind of a come-to-Jesus moment. They'll look at all their expenses and the money they have to cover that, and they'll really need to figure out how they're going to make ends meet, especially with some benefits ending soon. Hi, I'm Alana. Hi, Thank you for coming in. It's really nice to meet you both. So next Monday is the last day of your 90 days, but you, you shouldn't worry. Um, you have other things lined up that you have um, applied for. So those are the things that we'll go over when we go through your budget so that you know exactly what to expect after next week. This is an exit interview. Neda and Payman are at the three-month mark, and that's how long this agency is contracted to help them. It's a gentle push out of the nest. The caseworker checks on how they're adapting. She starts with a softball question. Do you know your address? An interpreter translates. He knows their address, but 
she doesn't. <laughs> okay. It's, it's really very important that you also carry it with you if there was an emergency or something. Then the caseworker cuts to the chase. How do you plan to pay the bills going forward? Netta answers. <laughs> Payment has to work. <laughs> They're both eager to get jobs, but due to a government delay, their work authorization just arrived today, nearly two months late. They'd been waiting on that to put in applications. Their savings will last a few more weeks, so the race is on. And that's not all. They got some big news the other day, the kind of news that changes your life and all your calculations. It's four months since Netta and Paymon arrived as refugees. They're at a doctor's appointment, and let me tag along. The doctor pulls out a tape measure. Some people don't start feeling the baby until they're 22 weeks. Yep, there's a baby on the way. Good. Okay, we'll see you next month, okay? Thank you, If you need anything, you know where we are, okay? As we walk out, Paymon, in his playful way, leans over Netta's shoulders and practices for the big day. Netta, I'm here. Don't worry, I'm here. <laughs> this baby lights them up with joy, and also with an urgency to get some things in order. Their first months did not go exactly as planned. Rent is higher than expected, and they hoped for jobs right away. In Iran, Netta was a pastry chef, and Paymon set up telecom networks. But here, it took three months just to get social security cards, something most employers want to see. Paymon was stressed, but tried to keep up Netta's spirits. This journey had been hard on her. She cried a lot. Then, a couple weeks back, they turned a major corner. They both landed their first jobs at one of the most all-American places around. So up here, you see the orders come in. McNuggets and one McChicken. McDonald's. Paymon tends a fryer. Netta assembles sandwiches. Onion crispy. Yeah. Crispy onion. Crispy onion, yeah. Uh, bacon, cheese. Paymon jokes that he's put on a few pounds. <laughs> That's too bad for me. <laughs> Most days, like today, they work side by side. That way Paymon can help Netta with her English. It's no coincidence they found this job. Lots of Iranians work here, says their manager, Mosh Zadeh. Yeah, I have pretty much about 20 of them working for me. All from Iran? All from Iran, yes. yes. Is that, are you Iranian also? I'm an Iranian as well, yes. So yes. it's kind of a network. Uh, it's kind of a network. I have about 14 of them working for other McDonald's as well. He hires refugees from other countries, too. These jobs are a humbling step down for Netta and Paymon. Zadeh sees that a lot. I've had people that were engineers back home, for instance, but for now they had to work and had have an income. Netta and Paymon earn about 10 bucks an hour. Data show a refugee's income tends to steadily increase over time, but it's gotten tougher, and today's refugees are not making the same gains as those who arrived in the 80s and 90s. A recent study from the Migration Policy Institute suggests several reasons for this lag. The recent recession, an influx of new refugees with low education, and minimal levels of support for them upon arrival. Hamburger patties. Yes, hamburger patties. Paymon says he gets along well with his American co-workers. Except this one time, another guy yelled at Paymon for doing extra chores all the time. He said it made others look bad. 
That guy got fired after a couple weeks. And some customers get impatient with his English, so he practices in his downtime. Hi, how are you? What do you do today? Oh, rain is coming. It's a good job for now, but soon Netta will be home with the baby. Paymon's income alone will not cover the rent. Something's got to change. It's a hot Sunday afternoon, and I'm out at Payman and Netta's apartment in Kent. I think they've been up since about 8 a.m., packing boxes and just cleaning out their apartment. Seven months after they arrive, Netta and Payman are on the move. The last thing to pack up is a bonsai plant that Payman likes to talk to. I say, I love you. You are, you are simple of the life. Where do you find this plant? Uh, at Ikea. A friend helps carry the boxes to the parking lot. They've decided to move to Palm Springs for several reasons. It's sunnier, and Payman has cousins there who can help him find a better job. But a huge factor is the cost of living. Their new rent will save them a couple hundred dollars a month. It's common for new refugees to relocate. Seattle's become a popular choice for the $15 minimum wage. Officially, this is called secondary migration, and some experts say it's an overlooked challenge in the resettlement process because people move around, but their support services don't. Payman is optimistic about what's ahead. I'm feeling happy. I'm feeling excited. I hope I take a good job and maybe I will buy a home for my family. Not for me. <laughs> and in five years, he says, they can be citizens, Americans, not refugees. Trunk is full? Yes. <laughs> They'll drive south in an overstuffed gold sedan. A Ukrainian immigrant gifted them this car and said, pay me when you can. Paymon says mostly they felt welcomed here, but there have been a couple odd encounters. And what happens now as they pack up? For nearly an hour, a young man with a shaved head stands 20 feet from the car, arms crossed, intently watching. We all just sort of ignore it, and the guy eventually leaves. It's sundown. The car is finally packed. Netta, seven months pregnant, takes the passenger seat with a laundry basket on her lap. Paymon says goodbye to his friend and slides behind the wheel. It's a movie moment. There's a sunset, they're driving off, and an ice cream truck rolls by. Oh, and by the way, it's a baby boy. They name him Nathan. Nathan. And now, the final chapter of our series. For many new arrivals, the trauma of their past can cast a long shadow. It's estimated about one in three refugees experience mental health issues due to violence, displacement, and loss. In this last story, we meet a Somali family struggling to be okay. So can you say your name? Okay. I'm called Osman Mohammed. 
I'm just a refugee. I ran from my country since back 1993, and I just came to Kenya for issues of security and protection. Osman will give this introduction many times during his early days here as he seeks help for his family. Here, he's talking to a social service provider. Osman is 27, tall, slim, polite. He spent most his life in a refugee camp and arrived to Seattle ready to charge forward. While I came to U.S., I thought that I stepped on the paradise step. I found the peace, peace country. I love it. And absolutely, I wish to get as soon as possible to be a better life. He wants to be a pharmacy technician someday. But on this day, after about a month in America, he's at a Somali nonprofit in crisis. How kind of a challenge I'm having what am I supposed to do, ma'am, while I'm new? So what happened? Tell, tell us about this story. Absolutely, ma'am. Let me just tell you all of this, you know. Like, uh, while we were just... Osman's been dealt an unusually tough hand here. He witnessed a crime a few days back. It seems to reopen old wounds and throw him into a familiar tailspin of panic. Once again, just like so many times in Africa, he's wondering, how will I survive? You ran out that way. No, come on, I'll show you where I ran Later, Osman shows me what happened. You see? We're outside his apartment, his family's first home in this country. On Friday, there was killed a man here. On Friday. Right here on the sidewalk? Right here. You saw it? I saw it. I saw the man was being shot. Take for the pistol up like this. A gunfight erupted right outside their porch. Osman was taking out the trash. He dropped it and ran. His wife and young daughters, ages two, four, and five, watched from the bedroom window. My kids, they saw the blood. They saw the cops. They were being crying. They were not knowing what to be done. A few days later, another shooting right outside. Osman's family refuses to stay another night. As he talks now about this ordeal and in the weeks ahead, Osman thinks about his daughters. He's still haunted by violent memories from his own childhood. Will his girls now go through that too? They even told me that, Dad, we are not going back to our apartment. We will be dead if we go there. Your girls say that? Yeah, the girl says that. We ran from bullets in Africa, Osman says, and again, we find bullets here. Osman was about four years old when his family fled Somalia's bloody civil war. We ran from our country because we were being discriminated a lot. We were a people who were just a minority tribe. Brava. What is it? What is it? Oh, Brava. Yeah, Brava, Brava. Brava. Brava, Brava. Yeah, yeah. In Somalia, he says his tribe is treated as the lowest, the worst. In Somalia, even some people, when we are just a person to them, they do like this. They don't like us. They put their their shirt up yeah, above their nose. Make us like we are smelling. That's far from the worst of it. He says the clan warfare was constant. 24-7, 24-7, no, no one day rest. There is no a one day single rest. A scar behind Osman's ear traces back to that time. His mom refuses to tell him how it happened, but Osman knows it's connected to the day his younger sister died. He says hostile men attacked their home. They raped and killed his sister and his aunt. His parents fled to a refugee camp in Kenya, where they still live, two decades later, in a precarious situation. Somalis now make up one of the largest groups of refugee arrivals to the U.S. Seattle is home to the third largest population. Go, go straight. Yeah, go straight.
In the months ahead, when I talk with Osman, I'm struck by how his emotions often overtake him. Little things trigger his thoughts of Africa. Like this one rainy day, in the car, he's giving me directions to an appointment and starts to cry about his parents. I'm still challenging with my kids. I still remember my parents. I'm not sleeping well. Too much worry, too much, too much thinking back with my parents. What's going on with them, you know? This will be part of Osman's challenge as he tries to set up a life here. He's torn between his future and his past. He's struggling to provide for his children here and racked with guilt and fear for his parents in Africa. He worries he's abandoned them in a desperate hour. The Kenyan government wants to close their refugee camp and his parents may be forced back to Somalia. What did you think it would be like when you got here to America? I was told that I'm in paradise, you know, but I found that still. And I hope that I will forget for the past consequence what I have been passed in my country. It's hard to hear, but he says he hoped he'd forget what he's gone through in the past. Somehow, he seems to feel it more. He pulls up the collar of his jacket to wipe his eyes. The U.S. considers it a public health priority to provide mental health services for new refugees. But there are many barriers to care, including cost, accessibility, and cultural differences. Osman says he's never talked to a counselor about what he's been through. After the shootings outside Osman's apartment, his family stayed with other refugee friends for several weeks. Eventually, they got a new apartment in Federal Way. Hi. Hi, is your daddy here? Yeah. Osman? Yeah. Yeah, Baba. Hi. Osman's three daughters let me in. Hi. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You're taking my hand, <laughs> pulling me inside. It's Osman's day off work, and he slept in. Five months have passed since they arrived. Osman seems more at ease. His wife, Rama, has just made injera bread. The girls sit on the kitchen floor to eat it. They like to eat on the yeah, floor. Yeah, they like to eat on the floor because they are still on the life of a refugee. They've had other setbacks since they arrived. They've moved four times, and a car hit Osman in the crosswalk, then sped off. The car just hit me and ran from me. He shows me the hospital bill. Okay, I'll show you. But he's got a job now, washing dishes at a large bakery. It's a long bus commute, two hours each way. Plus, a Muslim nonprofit is helping with their rent for the first year. Things are looking up. That's the grandmother calling right now? It's Osman's mom calling from the refugee camp. Hello, As they talk, Osman buries his head in his hands, crying. His father is having more health issues. No, no help. No help at all. I'm here. His daughter touches her small hand to his cheek. Osman says sometimes this crying scares him, makes him feel dizzy. He'll just be crossing the street and it hits him. His wife says she's never seen him cry like this. A little later, we take a walk outside. Did you see the Starbucks? Yeah. <laughs> Osman is laughing, smiling again. 
and philosophical about life. So sincerely, like, uh, if I told you the truth, Lizzie, you know, you cannot achieve or reach your aim if you don't struggle. So now I'm struggling. And he's okay with the struggle because here there's also hope that he can heal and move forward. And that's something he hasn't felt in a long time.